Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program. The Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools are here every Saturday at 12 noon without fail to defend and to promote public education. That is education which is public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it is publicly accessible to all children and it should be publicly owned and controlled. No private public partnerships, thank you. As well as that, it is the only one that should be publicly funded because it's the only one that's publicly accountable. Now, all of these ideas seem to be self-evident, excepting that in Australia for the last 50 years, we don't seem to be too good at uh, performing common sense policies. And this has certainly been the case in education since state aid or public funding was given to private schools that are not public in any of the ways that I have just described. And the dogs have been here since 1964. And uh, last uh, Sunday, they went off to the Pibsey people down in Seaford, And uh, we had a lovely time there with these people because they are very concerned about public services and corporations and the way they are taking them over in this country. And these are some of the preliminary remarks that um, I made when I was asked to speak. Robert, I'm sorry, is not here today. He also spoke and um, he will tell you what he had to say about the actual schools down Seaford Way and their funding because it turns out that the Catholic school down there actually gets more than one of the local public schools, but um, per student, that is, uh, and um, that is in public funding only. That's discounting other, other funds that they have, like fees. But... Uh, This is what I had to say. Back in the day, that was Whitlam's day, the claim was made that the state aid issue was dead. Well, tell that to Mr Birmingham and all of the reporters in the, uh, the mainstream press in the last two weeks after Birmingham was forced by Tony Jones to admit on Q&A on the 26th of the 9th, 2016, that some private schools were... Overfunded. Surprise, surprise. That's not the most interesting news for those who watch the privatisation ideologues and the hedge funds wandering around the world for profiteering on the back of public facilities. Because the problems of the GFC of 2008 were papered over. The derivatives, trillions of dollars worth of them, never went away. 
No, the most interesting news is semi-buried on page 36 of the Friday, the 30th of the 9th, 2016 Financial Review. Namely, there's a rumour that the hedge funds are circling a cornerstone of our cannibalistic capitalist system, namely the Deutsche Bank. Uh, Since then, in the last week, uh, the United States, which was asking them to pay an enormous bill, uh, they have uh, appeared to have papered things over a little bit. But one wonders when the Deutsche Bank is in the same kind of situation that Lehman Brothers was in 2008, just what is going to happen. And perhaps Brexit was the best thing that ever happened to Great Britain. So we, we ordinary folk, must ask a very basic question. Do we want these big corporations to privatise our public education enterprises? And if we do allow it, what's going to happen to our children if these enterprises fail? Because fail, they do. And when they fail, they fail in a very big way. The results are on the board. Privatisation of basic public services has been tried in both past centuries and in recent years, and it has failed dismally. Look at the mess that Mr Birmingham is now in with the student debt in the vet sector. And he's trying his hardest to blame Gillard, and so he should blame Gillard because they privatised TAFE. It's a multi-billion dollar scandal. And private schools like Acacia College Mernda have proved a financial disaster, not just for the school, but for the whole uniting church itself that's been forced to sell up little churches uh, without even the congregations having much say in it. And the census debacle has been a national embarrassment too. Are we even secure these days from attack? Now government IT is being contracted out. South Australia has just suffered an energy catastrophe because the privatisation meant that the infrastructure has not been updated. They have big poles still up in the air. Why can't they put it underground? Because it costs money and affects profits. And Turnbull got political and tried to blame the alternative energy for infrastructure failures and rising costs because of privatisation. Well, he can fool some people, listeners, but he can't fool us. Energy was privatised in recent decades to the tune of neoliberal ideology. And Frydenberg should resign if ministerial responsibility means anything. Because private corporations, and that includes private religious corporations, are about profit, not about proper provision. Now, last Sunday, uh, we went down to Seafood to discuss current attempts to privatise education. And the dog's position is that privatisation always failed has failed and will always fail, dismally. Along with health, its failure, however, is the most worrying because it threatens to undermine our public education system and with it the very democratic, legal, economic and social fabric of our society. 
So in spite of a litany of failures, the private market ideology is still laid up in heaven. And Turnbull has directed the Productivity Commission to conduct an inquiry into how to further privatise our public services without looking at whether handing over control of our services to corporations is in the best interests of all Australians. When will they ever learn? So last Sunday was a very important meeting and the dogs were very proud to be asked to be there. But listeners, we are now going to play you a, um, a, a community announcement which will tell you more about what you can do if you're concerned about the privatisation of public services, including public education in Victoria and in Australia. Public Interest Before Corporate Interests Action Group. Why is it so difficult to find a home, to pay rent, pay mortgage? Why is it so difficult to afford childcare, get a decent education for the kids, have so much trouble gaining access to public hospitals and healthcare, finding a job, let alone a secure, well-paid one, to be able to pay for gas and power bills or even put food on the table? Remember when we could do all of this on one wage and an eight-hour day? We invented and built, discovered and taught. We made ships, planes and cars. We were among the world first in social, health, scientific and arts initiatives. Alas, no more. The three big parties are funded by corporates and therefore dependent and cannot honestly represent public interest. We are looking for like-minded people who would be interested in making significant actions to inhibit corporate power by pressuring politicians, writing public petitions, initiating public forums to inform and also give people a voice, organising demonstrations, standing a political candidate, investigative journalism and corporate vulnerability analysis. Contact PIBSI, www.pibci.net, www.pibci.net. Email Info at pibsi.net, P-I-B-C-I dot net. Phone 0439395489. P.O. Box 20 Parkville, Victoria 3052. Public Interest Before Corporate Interest. If you would like to help put public interest before corporate interest, contact Pibsi. Well, the dogs have had great problems for 50 years in being taken seriously. But the dogs don't mind whether we're taken seriously or not because we are on about a cause. And our cause is very simple and it's laid down in our constitution. We have two objectives. One objective is to promote and to defend public education and the other objective is to oppose uh, any attempts to water down the separation of religion and the state in this country because the two are in fact very intimately connected. And we have done this uh, for the last 50, 60 years and we'll do it for the next 50 or 60 years too. But uh, we have been called all the names under the sun because we have been prepared to take on the private school interest, the private religious school interest. 
And a few people around Australia have been prepared to do this, the secularists and the rationalists and those who have a genuine Christian belief and and take very seriously what Christ said about giving to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. And they have, over the time, been fairly consistent. But large numbers of state school supporters over the years have thought that there was a way around the problem. And so they invented a thing called the needs policy. Well, the needs policy is now in tatters. And it's coming out that what it's always been about was, in fact, a turn to the ba- return to the bad old days of Europe with a class-based system, which is backed up by big religious institutions. We thought that we had solved these problems in Australia, and we did, but we've gone back to this. And the penny is starting to drop. In The Age this week, Julie Zigo wrote a very interesting article which could have almost been penned by the dogs. So I'm going to read you this article and then, because Robert's not with us today, Dale is very going to, very kindly going to read out the letters that came into the paper on the same day. Because state school parents are not stupid And the new generation of parents who want their children to go to state schools and who have no choice but to send their children to public schools um, are not stupid. They can see where the money is actually going and where it shouldn't be going if it was a fair system. So this is what Julie Zago has to say, starting off with the idea that perhaps we should have an equitable system and an equitable uh, society. This is on page 19 of The Age of Thursday, October the 6th, 2016. A class system schooled in privilege. An equitable education system in Australia, question mark? We are deluding ourselves. How did we become the nation that all but abandoned the ideal of public education for the greater good? The nation that clings to a mythology of egalitarianism, even as its leaders throw billions of taxpayer dollars at the richest schools with no strings attached. The nation that's deluded itself into believing it can entrench privilege without also exacerbating disadvantage. Not only does Australia have one of the most inequitable education systems in the developed world, and last Sunday, our listeners, Robert uh, pointed out to his audience that the Australian system is weird in the way we try to kid ourselves that we are an egalitarian nation when we throw so much money at privilege. So not only does Australia have one of the most inequitable education systems in the developed world, an inequity that's a direct threat to our prosperity, our leaders have been celebrating this failure as a virtue. So when Education Minister Simon Birmingham said last week that some private schools get too much public money, a comment that should have been regarded as an innocuous statement of common sense, he busted 
a long-held taboo. So what is this taboo? It's the kind of remark that routinely provokes an accusations of class warfare. In truth, we've been engaged in hostilities for the past two decades. Well, Julie, I'd say that it was in fact for the past six decades. Successive governments have waged war on the roughly 60% of families who entrust their children to a public education system in the reasonable expectation the state is an honest broker. Consider the response of the Shadow Education Minister Tanya Plibersek to Birmingham's bombshell. We know her taunting him about a secret hit list was a tit-for-tat reference to Mark Latham's notorious private school hit list of the 2004 federal campaign. But Julius Sego is not the first to criticise her stance. But it's hard to overstate the heart-sinking implications of a leading figure of the left faction of a party whose banner is equal opportunity attacking a conservative for daring to suggest some elite schools should get a bit less so disadvantaged schools can get more. And she did this not in the heat of battle on Q&A, but via a press release in the cold light of day. Well, Julie Sego doesn't go on to say, of course, uh, what the background of these people actually is and where they went to school and what religious background they come from. But as for a hit list... Julie Sego remarks, there's no shortage of suggested mock-ups. None of them are secret. One published in The Age last week showed 150 private schools overfunded by hundreds of millions of dollars, a list that includes Bluestone Melbourne Grammar and Oak Hill College in Sydney, which boasts an indoor swimming pool and farm with livestock. As Birmingham negotiates a new funding deal with the states, the private school lobby argues that targeting overfunded private schools would only reduce the federal government's spending on schools by 0.5%. Well, we don't believe their figures, do we? We never have, especially when the uh, down here in Victoria, the Auditor-General's finally had the intestinal fortitude to take on the Catholic Education Office. But uh, Julie Zigo doesn't go into this, of course. But the sector's economic frame of reference, that's a coherent argument because to Melbourne Grammar, an extra $2 million is mere pocket money. The Independent Schools Council of Australia warned private schools shouldn't be treated as a, quote, easy target for funding costs. If the past is a guide, they've little to worry about. Latham's electoral failure in 2004 gave rise to the mythology, and I'm very glad that she's saying it is a mythology because it was, that the idea of the fair go had come to encompass an irreversible entitlement of rich schools to taxpayer funds. In fact, if you go back to 2004, you'll see that his hit list improved his um, chances in the polls. What uh, was a problem for Latham were the loggers in Tasmania. 
and I've always said this, it was quite obvious at the time, but this myth has been promoted by the, by the private schools since 2004. Uh, myths can be hard to uproot, Julie mentions, and then from then on, we've been conditioned to view any proposal to cut funding to private schools as an attack on aspirational parents prepared to make sacrifices for their children. We apparently acquiesce to this scandalous inefficiency, even as a student performance stalls, even as the gutting of middle-class students from government schools um, creates residual schools where the high concentration of poor and disadvantaged children places yet more demands on the public purse. Well, this has happened, of course, and it was quite obvious it was going to happen, that we were going to have rich and poor in different schools. And the dogs uh, predicted that this would happen in 1964 as soon as the first penny of state aid came through. And it's happened. And Julie Segoe is prepared to call it as it is and all, um, all strength to her pen. Now, Julie Segoe goes on. All these contradictions were baked into the Gillard government's Gonski reforms, which purported to allocate school funding according to need, but didn't really because of the Prime Minister's promise that no school would be worse off under the model. Philosophically, this needs-based funding that wasn't sued, that hasn't soothed the middle-class conscience by encouraging a cognitive dissonance. Now good parents could send Celeste or Jackson, to a private school citing all the usual reasons. It's only because the local high school doesn't teach cello. It's only because she's the fragile type, you know. Believing the funding bounty would eventually close the gap between rich and poor schools, enticing more parents like them, if not actually them, into the government system. But Julie Sego is honest enough... To, to not blame the coalition for repeatedly reneging on Gonski because the plan was always a typically unsustainable Labor fairy tale. Good on you, Julie. The original Carmel Report was a fairy tale. If you give money to private enterprise to undermine public enterprise, then you're going to end up with rich and poor and disadvantage. And only this time, this fairy tale has been twisted out of shape. Birmingham says it would take more than 100 years for some overfunded schools to return to appropriate funding under the current model. Well, dogs have got an answer to that. Just defund them. They're inefficient and ineffective and they cause trouble. If they want to be independent, let them be independent. Closing the gap between needy schools and their richer counterparts calls for an extra $4.5 billion a year, an 8% boost to Australia's total education spend, says the Grattan Institute's Peter Goss. And given our budgetary constraints, that would be incredibly tough. Perhaps now, with Gonski in ashes, we can be honest about the mess we've created and start picking our way out of it. I'm not expecting anything much to flow from Birmingham's remarks on overfunded private schools. The Coalition's record on educational equity being infinitely more dismal than Labor's. But maybe now he's said the bleeding obvious. We can start a clear-eyed debate about what a fair, world-class education system might look like. Well, congratulations, Julie. 
uh, for saying it as it is. Now she, the next thing she's got to say is that the way forward is to defund the lot of them, including those poor, so-called poor Catholic schools, particularly the ones that are getting more than the, um, than the state schools, their local state schools. We own them. We pay for them. Let's just take them over. Uh, and where there's duplication of facilities, let's stop that too. But um, that's been the dog's position. It was the position of the people who started our public education systems back in the 19th century. You can have one good public system and one good independent system that is genuinely private, not public, but you can't have a dual system that is publicly funded. It's just a nonsense. Uh, and talk about need, needs policy has proved itself to be a Labor Party fairy tale. So Julie Seeger wasn't the only one who thought this way. There were four really interesting letters in the same paper and Dale is going to read them for you. Thanks, Jean. The first letter I've got here, uh, name and address withheld, uh, is uh, headlined, uh, System Committed to Ending Social Mobility. This year I started teaching at a low SES public school in the northern suburbs. Due to the inadequate funding of the school, uh, the school doesn't have enough computers, which means I get I spend a great deal of time bargaining with other teachers for one of the few computer-equipped rooms, often to no avail. The students' families cannot afford to buy laptops, and those introduced under the Rudd government have long since fallen into disrepair, with no money to, to fix them. I cannot deliver a quality, modern education to the, in the humanities to students who lack internet access. To hear that private schools already bloated with funds are receiving amounts of money above their entitlement, while schools like mine cannot afford basic requirements, is frustrating and puzzling. It indicates a system committed to increasing class disparity and stripping working-class families of social mobility. The next letter is entitled, No Hope for Equitable Society. Anyone who's driven past an overfunded private school over the past few years couldn't help but wonder where it got the money for another tennis court, swimming pool, theatre, gymnasium and so on. And all this when some state schools can barely afford basic maintenance. It's a disgrace. An equitable education system underpins an equitable society. We are failing on both counts. A long time ago, I had a very heated argument with someone about aid to private schools. I was vehemently opposed. In, it's the thin edge of the wedge, I said, and it gives me no satisfaction to say, I told you so. The next letter, Labor's response was a disgrace. Of course, there's no correlation between the amount of money spent on education and improved outcomes. Obviously, it all depends on how the money is spent. If the money is spent on luxury facilities for elite, for elite schools, how could this improve literacy at schools catering for students from 60 different nationalities? Christopher Pine has boasted that the additional education funding given to the Northern Territory had no strings attached, as if this were a virtue. Territory governments of both persuasions are notorious for diverting federal funds from their intended purpose. The funding wasn't even used to reinstate sacked secondary teachers. 
Just imagine if that money had been used to staff remote community schools with an ESL teacher, teacher-student ratio appropriate for children starting school without English. Then we might have seen literacy levels improve. Instead, we have no idea what happened to that money. Meanwhile, it was a disgrace that Labor tried to take political advantage of Simon Birmingham's admission that some private schools were overfunded instead of welcoming the chance to reform the system. And the final letter, little change in half a century. I did Year 11 at the late Springvale High School in 1969. In biology, we had to perform minor surgery on recently deceased frogs. We had a handful of stereo microscopes for a class of 20 people, so in groups of five, one person would dissect the frog while the other four people looked at what was being done. I had a mate in a big inner city private school and his biology class had had a stereo microscope for every student. His school also had a television in every room, so he watched the moon landing from his desk. Springvale High had four TVs, which were hauled over to the assembly hall so we could all watch the landing. It looks to me like nothing has changed in 46 years since I walked out the gate of Springvale High for the last time, despite the numerous inquiries. The rich schools still get everything and the poor schools still get nothing. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dale. We'll have a bit of a break now for some music.
Well, there was some CVE bark, not the great Sebastian Bach, but his son, one of his many musical sons. So we hope you enjoyed that. And uh, we're back here on the Dogs Program. Uh, We start at 12 noon and have an hour every Saturday on 3CR, 8.55 on the AM dial. And we're back to talk about uh, educational issues in public education. In the last couple of weeks, the uh, pens have been writing hot on just a statement by Mr Birmingham made on Q&A. And on one website, which is called Insight, a very good website, I might say, Dean Ashenden from Melbourne University writes again. Now, Dean Ashenden is a great supporter of Gonski, as are many people. Many people placed a lot of faith and hope in Gonski because he at least opened up the garbage tin of state aid. It became obvious that there was huge levels of disadvantage in Australia. But Gonski, like everyone before him, was not allowed to delve into the uh, private school garbage tin. And the garbage tin it is. But because Gillard made the private schools give her a certain number of facts, FAQS, which go up on the My School website, people can now see that the time has come when many private schools who were allegedly are poor little parish schools and others are actually getting more public money, direct public money, than local state schools. So the time has come to actually question state aid. But Dean Ashenden and academics uh, haven't yet got the intestinal fortitude that the lady we spoke about before, Julie Zago, have. Dean Ashenden is uh, still talking about the bits and pieces and he asks these questions. Federal Minister Simon Birmingham has fired the first shots in the latest battle of the school funding wars. Here's our short guide to the terrain. One, has Australia been spending more and more on schools? Yes and no. Over the past decade or two, as a proportion of GDP or relative to other countries, not really. But as an amount spent per student per year over the long term, yes. And the best available estimate is that between 63 to 64 and 2003 to 4, spending in 2003 $4 rose from 4575 per student to 8297 per student. But recent increases alleged to have been spectacular almost certainly were not. These overall figures conceal substantial differences in spending between states, sectors and schools. Two. So, are Australian schools well-funded? Yes and no. Australian spending is at about the OECD average, but that's the total spend, not the particular. Some secondary schools, for example, have around 30,000 per pupil to spend uh, each year, but most others have around half that. Big spending sometimes reflects need, schools in some remote Aboriginal communities, but mostly doesn't. To the contrary, 
Thanks to the workings of the real estate market and of choice by families, the selection or exclusion by schools, most high-revenue schools cater to high-income clienteles. And that also gets them more than their fair share of that most valuable of all educational resources, students who are good at schoolwork. Other schools with much less money thereby get to do a harder educational job. On top of this systemic inequality is simple unfairness. A primary school on one side of the New South Wales-Victoria border, for example, gets 9672 per student per year, while a very similar school on the other side gets 7732 And the money problem is not in the amount spent, but in how it's distributed and used. So the third question for Dean Ashenden is, is the money used as well as it can be? No, not really. Over the long term, more money has helped to make schools more congenial and humane places than they once were, which is no small thing. Well, you can get a degree these days at Melbourne University in wellbeing, uh, in school wellbeing or student wellbeing. But much spending has been driven by politics rather than purpose. For two or three decades from the 1960s, most extra funding went on the high-cost, low-effectiveness strategy of across-the-board reduction in class sizes. And since then, funding increases have been soaked up by rising costs, salaries, um, as the Baumol effect predicts. And any genuinely new money over and above cost increases has typically gone to meet special needs of children with disabilities particularly and repair damage done in the mainstream, low student engagement in secondary schools, for example, rather than to change the mainstream. Only rarely has new money been used to free up the old money locked up in the grammar of schooling. One teacher, one class, one lesson of 45 minutes in one subject and so on. That grammar, in turn, is locked into place by industrial agreements that set limits on the size of every class, rather than maximum student-staff ratios. They enforce a strict division of labour between teachers and support staff and prohibit person technology swaps. In short, he believes that each school should be doing its own Gonski matching effort to need, but can't. And in sum, we have a cumulative incrementalism in which problems and costs increase faster than solutions can be provided. So fourthly, schools have more money, but they haven't lifted their game? No and yes. The obvious but simple-minded conclusion favoured by some economists, federal ministers of education and pundits, is that spending more doesn't work. And the argument is that the PISA, NAPLAN and other standardised tests show that attainment has plateaued while funding hasn't. Well, leaving to one side the vexed question of how well standardised tests measure some aspects of some areas of the academic curriculum and the fact that the academic curriculum is not the whole school story by any means, it remains true that money has been spent where it is not needed and not where it is and on more of the same rather than repurposed. These are failures of the system, not of the school's. So is the tidal movement of families who can choose away from those who can't making it more and more difficult for many schools to lift attainment? On top of which, schools are endlessly expected to do more things. So why the endless brawling over money? It's the structure, stupid, 
Three sectors, each funded in different ways from three different sources, two levels of government involved, one with responsibility, the other with money. Some schools charging fees, others free, well, nominally anyway. Some schools, including some government schools, selecting or rejecting students on academic and or financial and or religious grounds. Others require by law to take all comers. These arrangements are international worst practice, a recipe for gaming the system and for conflict. Well, I think that Dean Ashenden, and I have my differences with Dean Ashenden, has actually got something there. I'll say it again. Some schools select or reject students on academic and or financial and or religious grounds. Others are required by law to take all comers. We know which is which. These arrangements are international worst practice, a recipe for gaming the system and for conflict because everyone has been given a legitimate basis for grievance. The fee payers argue they need more government support to keep fees down. Well, it hasn't happened, has it? And because they're taxpayers after all. The non-fee payers point out that their schools are open to all and do the hard educational yards and therefore deserve first claim on the public purse. The selective public schools keep their heads down and the system creates a large space and rewards for politics and minimises the role of evidence and expertise. Interest groups form around different categories of school and ideologies form around them. Brawls over the second-order question of funding displaces debate over the first-order question of the character and direction of schooling as a whole. So, finally, he gets to the point. Where did these problems come from? He actually asks a historical question, and he goes back to Whitlam. It was Whitlam's famous Carmel Report of 1973 that determined that some schools would be funded and others merely aided, that therefore some parents who couldn't afford it would pay and that many who could wouldn't, that parents would therefore have the right but not necessarily the capacity to choose that some schools would select but others wouldn't, that there would be, in short, three sectors funded in different ways, governed in different ways, with very different rights and obligations. Whitlam and Carmel didn't just dream it up. They made the best politics they could from the furious state aid debates of the 50s and 60s, which stemmed from the movements in the second half of the 19th century to end the decades-old system of public support for private schools, which stemmed from fundamental demographic and political facts the Europeans brought with them. And Whitlam's biographer called it Australia's oldest, deepest and most poisonous debate. And that was 1977. Well, I think that Dean Ashenden is finally uh, coming to the conclusion that Whitlam didn't bury the state aid issue because the problems of the relationship between religion and the state are never going to go away, particularly if you give money to religion. If we don't treat religion as a private matter but a public matter, then we're going to have problems. Well, seven, did Gotgonski have the fix? So Dean Ashenden says he's a real fence sitter. Yes and no. Gonski's proposals included 
a fair and rational way of deciding what funding each school needed, irrespective of sector, location or clientele, a national authority to run the detail and thereby shift the balance of funding decisions away from politics and towards evidence and expertise. Well, Dean Ashenden and a lot of other people too, of course, if they set up an authority, can be looking uh, at, well, jobs for the boys. Remember Mark Herner? Mark Herner got a lovely job for the girls on the Schools Commission and sold out the dogs in the process. But that is the ancient history and that's the way the Labor Party works. Uh, eight, his question eight, was Gonski trashed by Bill Shorten as alleged by Federal Education Minister Simon Birmingham? And he says, hardly. Shorten played a late and minor role in doing on-the-fly deals with states and territories, and these were mere nails in the coffin. It was Peter Garrett, Shorten's predecessor in the education portfolio, who did most of that part of the damage, and he did so at the behest of his Prime Minister, Julia Gillard. And Gillard deserves much of the blame for not driving Gonski home when she had the chance, thus giving the usual interest groups time and opportunity to bowdlerise a singularly bold and coherent plan. On the other hand, Gillard does get much of the credit for giving Gons- getting Gonski underway as Education Minister and then as Prime Minister. Well, as for Mr Birmingham's coalition predecessors, what can we say? Well, remember they said that they had private schools in their DNA. He says they were duplicitous spoilers from the outset, first bad-mouthing the whole idea, then egging on coalition-governed states to reject it, then promising at the 11th electoral hour a unity ticket on Gonski, then nanoseconds after the election junking it, and now, having found themselves wrong-footed by Gonski's wide and deep support, not least inside the Conservatives' own ranks, having the gall to claim that it was Labor all along that's been the villain of the peace. Well, what's Birmingham going to do? It's too soon to tell if there's a plan or not. And is there a way out? Well, Dean Ashenden, of course, who is a needs policy man at heart in the short term, he says, perhaps in the long run, learn from the AFL, use funding and regulation to make sure that no team gets too far ahead or too far behind, that all are equipped, encouraged and required to provide an educationally engaging program to a diverse clientele. Well, that's lovely. That's all very nice. But um, what do you do when you've got a sector that is quite um, intent on preventing this from happening? That's just not in their ideology. Yes, you can level up the playing field, or you can try, and that would mean putting all families on the same basis. No, Dean, it would mean withdrawing state aid and making sure that every child in Australia has the right to a first-rate public education. And if independent schools and wealthy parents want to buy out, then they can pay for it themselves. Now, David Zingnia was the only one uh, who had something to say in his comments. I didn't respond because the last time I responded to Dean Ashenden, his response to me, um, well, I, I just couldn't be bothered. Um, he somehow wanted to say that I was arguing from principle and that was not that I should be talking about ideas and interest groups. Well, I'm not sure what principles are if they're not ideas, um, 
And uh, if more people had stuck to their principles in the 1960s, we wouldn't be where we are now. But this is what David Zingner had to say. Dean, it really is difficult to have it both ways. The biggest problem with Gonski Review was that in the introduction to the report, the review accepts as immutable the funding of private business schools by public subsidy. Alan Reid has written extensively about the origin of this entitlement mentality and any policy can be reversed with enough mill. And that is the dog's position, listeners. We haven't changed since the 1960s. We actually are people who believe in adhering to our principles and we haven't changed from them. Uh, There has been nobody in the dogs who has been bought out with jobs for the boys or the girls. Uh, Quite the reverse. Some of the members of the dogs have suffered and suffered grievously, particularly our erstwhile President Ray Nielsen, who was badly vilified during his lifetime by these people. Uh, But um, the principle stands and eventually... The penny will drop. The only way forward is, in fact, the dog's position to stop state aid to private schools, let them be independent. They have every right to be independent. Uh, The dogs don't believe that people's either religious beliefs or their desire to be independent from the state should be questioned. But if you want to be independent, then you pay for it. If you truly want to be independent, then you've got to put your money where your mouth is. But that is the dog's position and uh, we're not changing from it. And public should be public and private should be private. And public should deal with the taxpayer's money and we should not be using our very, very valuable taxpayer's dollars uh, to uh, support failing businesses because that's what the private schools were in the 1960s and it's what they still are. They have failed. They have failed to do the job of educating all of our children. And as a result, 60% of our children are being sold short. Not good enough. So uh, that's enough from me for today. And uh, we have one announcement uh, about 3CR's Sunday event and uh, then we'll come back to say goodbye. On Sunday, the 9th of October, 3CR opens its doors to the community and invites you to come in and celebrate 40 years of radical radio. There'll be an awesome afternoon tea, roving musicians, special on-air broadcasts, and the opportunity to step into the studio and get behind the mic. There'll also be face painting for the kids, stalls, rolling station tours, and the chance to purchase, for the first time, 3CR 40th birthday T-shirt. Come in and enjoy your community radio station. 3CR Open Day, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Sunday the 9th of October, 12 to 4pm. See you all there. That's all there is from 3CR from the Dogs Program this week and hopefully Robert will be feeling better and be back with us. But thanks to Dale for helping us out. And if you want to find more about the dogs, go to www.adogs.info. So bye for now.
saw Joey last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe says I, him standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe, but I'm dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I, takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe, I didn't die. Says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill went on to organize. Went on to organize from San Diego up to Maine in every mine and mill where workers strike and organize. It's there you find your hill. It's there you find. Public interest before corporate interests action group. Why is it so difficult to find a home, to pay rent, pay mortgage? Why is it so difficult to afford childcare, get a decent education for the kids, have so much trouble gaining access to public hospitals and healthcare, finding a job, let alone a secure, well-paid one, to be able to pay for gas and power bills or even put food on the table? Remember when we could do all of this on one wage and an eight-hour day? We invented and built discovered and taught. We made ships, planes and cars. We were among the world first in social, health, scientific and arts initiatives. Alas, no more. The three big parties are funded by corporates and therefore dependent and cannot honestly represent public interest. 
we are looking for like-minded people who would be interested in making significant actions to inhibit corporate power by pressuring politicians, writing public petitions, initiating public forums to inform and also give people a voice, organising demonstrations, standing a political candidate, investigative journalism and corporate vulnerability analysis. Contact PIBSI, www.pibci.net, www.pibci.net. Email info at pibci.net, pibci.net. Phone 0439395489. P.O. Box 20 Parkville, Victoria 3052. Public Interest Before Corporate Interests. If you would like to help put public interest before corporate interest, contact Pibsy. Pibsy.